You're listening to From the Field, a podcast helping ministry leaders think differently, thrive personally, and lead thoughtfully. Welcome to From the Field. My name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the founder of Telio, a care and formation ministry for pastors. My name is Tyler Dravitz. I'm the executive pastor at Ridgeline Church and also the president of MyXP, a ministry where we provide remote executive pastor support to churches around the country. We're having a series of conversations. Uh, it's the month of March when we're doing this, which is the one-year anniversary of the world coming to a very stark standstill due to COVID. Which yeah. is insane to think about. Remember when it was going to be three weeks? Yeah. Or remember when I refused to join 2021 until it was over? Yeah. Yeah. You had so much writing on 2021. and That's then so much. And 2021 then, has been a real letdown. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> it's already screwing you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, we've been, uh, we have been trying to mark this by stopping to take stock of the past 12 months because it is easy. It's been such a haze. It's easy to lose track of how much insanity we all really have experienced and how oh, yeah. disruptive it has been. So we're trying to stop uh, this month and take stock of that uh, because, as we talked about last week, when we fail to take stock of an experience, we misdirect the effects of it or maybe miss um, or underestimate the effect that it's having on us. So we're trying to really take this seriously and consider what has the last 12 months really done to us. And so last time we talked a bit about a few things that have made the past 12 months so challenging pastorally. And this time we're going to press in to learn a bit more about what do we actually do with all that? We've acknowledged yeah. like, here's what we've experienced. Here's what's been challenging. Here's what's been hard. Here's what's changed. And what do we do with any of that? Right. And so to that end, I'm so excited today. We have a very special mm -hmm. guest. Mm -hmm. He that, is that our listeners know quite a bit about. Yeah. Yeah. But he's devilishly handsome. He, they don't know uh, that. Though. They don't know that. There's, unfortunately, there's no video. We'll put a picture up of him. Okay. He, Where do we uh, put a really chiseled he has, chin? He has the, the optical uh, good looks of uh, of a Drew Carey. <laughs> yeah, his, for his glasses. sure. Um, better body than Drew Carey, I'm just going to say it. No offense to Drew Carey, because he's a really funny guy. Mm -hmm. But um, our guest today has a better body. Wow. He's very attractive. I really feel like that's the thing that <laughs> Do we, I need to leave you guys alone? No, I just, maybe yeah. just me. Okay, um, cool. But I feel like that's what needed to be established here at the outset. So I today, that. we have the man, the myth, the legend, the <laughs> clinical psychologist for real. That's the only time you've ever gotten that correct. That's true. The one and only Dr. Zachary Sikora, which in Polish means little bird, <laughs> as your dad told that us at your wedding. <laughs> Yes, I'll he never did. forget yes, him standing like up, it. doing his uh, his toast, going, uh, Sakura, it means little bird. <laughs> well, number one, my dad has no accent. I know. <laughs> I wondered what that That's was. That's the way I heard it. I've not met him, but I, I, I wondered, yeah. So you completely you completely oversold me on that, by the no, way. No, I don't think I oversold your looks. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, can I can I I just have two things to say in the beginning here. Okay. Okay. I'm nervous. Since now I'm, I'm an, nervous. I'm an, I'm, an, I'm an avid listener, and you yes. guys have mentioned that yeah. every time. Uh huh. And mostly I just text you guys after the episode and yeah. criticize or make fun of things. Yes. Sure. <clears throat> so, number one, the intro music uh -huh. makes like what I imagine is that I'm in my high school gymnasium <laughs> and. 
and a like a an inspirational speakers coming on uh-huh. stage. <laughs> That's, that's so the true. Music. Or right like up. Joe Bluth doing some magic to it. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> exactly. It, it's like it's like reminiscent of a little jock jams even. It is yep. a little jock yeah. jams. Oh, yep. For sure an NBA that's team perfect. should be coming out to it. Not right. even W not, not even like NBA, probably like whatever's beneath <laughs> the NBA. I don't right. Know. You had two things. Is there another thing? Yeah, the second thing is Tyler. Mm-hmm is by far the talent on this show for sure. Wow. He's Preach. he's a wild card. Yeah, that's true. You never know what's going to happen. Never know. You never know. He's uh-uh. going to make you laugh or he's going to burst into tears at any moment. That's true. Yeah. He's an any emotional good, roller coaster. All true things. Yeah, any good comedic duo has like the straight guy and mm-hmm. then the the wild card and he's yeah. the wild card. You don't know what you're going to get. That's I'm, true. I'm so. sorry, so I'm the opposite of the straight guy? <laughs> That was meant in a comedic sense. Ah, okay, got it, got it. I, I wasn't familiar with that term. Only I'm excited really one about context. where this is headed. Yeah, I feel me like too, we got a real, too. real tone, real wow. specific yeah. tone to this. Mm-hmm. I'm, ho- I'm hoping to get you guys canceled by the yeah. end of this. <laughs> the, the problem is you're the only one who listens to it. So, sure. yeah, true. We could just true. have a could just have like a speakerphone call. That's true. Week, we could have just yeah, done that. That's okay. Well. Uh-huh. Um, People who have been listening to uh, In the Room or even the first iteration of From the Field, some people may not realize Tyler and I didn't used to do this together. There was like seven to nine episodes I did with pastors and I did one with you. So some people might be familiar with you, but for those who are listening Mm -hmm. who are not, why don't you just start by giving us a quick sort of background bio um, on who you are, what you do, and then specifically what led you into psychology? Sure. Yeah. So um, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I've lived here all my life. And my, uh, I guess my journey um, crossed with you guys when in my late teens, early 20s, we all were at the same church. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were playing I, in a ska I, band at the time, I, I think. I, would, I was just coming out of that. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was coming out of the ska haze. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Milkman's Kid, if you want to look him up <clears throat> on MySpace. The, I was just finally getting the hearing back after the horns after so many years. Um, but uh, at that time in my life, when I met you guys, I was in college. Uh, I actually started off in art school mm-hmm. um, and quickly realized that was not something I wanted to pursue. So I came back home and got involved in the church that you guys were at and um, just started taking classes at a community college and Quite honestly, what got me into psychology uh, was serial killers. Hmm. Kind of hmm. weird. This right? is this is getting uncomfortable. Yeah. So <laughs> I've always found them fascinating. I do too. And my yeah. and my mom used to read like the um, biographies of serial killers, and she had one on John Wayne Gacy that yeah. the like forensic examiner wrote. Yeah. And I remember just being so fascinated fascinated reading that book and just wondering like what could make somebody do this and what goes wrong. And, and so that I started taking more classes at a community college and found out that I really liked abnormal psychology, which is Mm. um, the study of uh, psychological disorders and Mm -hmm. the treatment of psychological disorders. So I kind of just took that as a path and graduated and uh, went on to graduate school uh, in the Chicago area and 2011, I graduated and started practicing. And for the past eight years, I've worked as a clinical psychologist with a big health system here in in Chicago. 
and uh, I treat all types of things, mostly adults, um, but anxiety disorders in particular are my specialty. So I tend to treat a lot of that. Uh, and I maintain my own private practice as well right now doing the same sort of things. What's, uh, I mean, you've always, one thing I've always really appreciated, um, you've spoken at our church and you've done some stuff on mental health at every church except Hickory that we've, we've been at. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've always, I've always appreciated how open you are about your own struggles with anxiety and what what was it like? I can't remember the exact timeline. Were you already pursuing psychology when you started to have panic attacks and anxiety started to become a real challenge for you personally? It, it so I graduated um, my with my bachelor's degree uh-huh. in April, uh-huh. and I was starting my graduate degree, my doctoral degree in August, mm-hmm. and I started to have panic attacks in April and May. Like mm-hmm. right between going into my doctoral program. What was that? So just talk a little bit about what that was, what that, I mean, and the reason I ask is because, you know, one thing that we do work hard on from the field is to just really be open and try to normalize struggle, which is very hard for a lot of pastors. And a lot of us live in an environment where it's not really safe to be able to do that. And so I think the more that we do it and the more that we normalize it, um, the, the, better we all sure. get, the healthier we all are. So what, I mean, especially it's gotta be really something to be in uh, studying a field that you're currently like, that you for sure went through a season that you personally felt like super upside down in. So what, what, what was it like to have those two things happening at the same time? It was awful. I mean, in April, I think I was putting an immense amount of pressure on myself. Uh-huh. Mm. Um, I was young, you know, I was 21 or 22 and I was putting a, an immense amount of pressure on myself to get into a, a doctoral program and to be successful. And I had just gotten married and I had all of these ideas that I needed to be financially secure very quickly. And there was all sorts of, I, I was worrying essentially. Mm-hmm. And that one day just culminated into a bunch of symptoms that occurred at the same time that I had never felt in my life before. Mm. Um, my heart was beating out of my chest. I was dizzy. I was lightheaded, faint feeling hot, um, feeling totally out of control. It essentially felt like I was having a, a heart attack and mm-hmm. I was 21 or 22 years old. Um, and so I was, I was working a, uh, a, a full-time job at that time in my my boss took me to the ER and they evaluated me and basically just sent me on my way and told me I was stressed out, which was mm. super helpful. Um, I already knew that. Yeah. But after that, I didn't have an answer for it. And I had not been in the field at all to know what I was experiencing mm. and to be educated on what was happening to me. And so my mind just kept going to all of these worst case scenarios. Did I have a brain tumor? Yeah. Uh, was there something wrong with me medically? And I was seeking like excessive reassurance from my doctors. At one point I had a, I asked for a brain scan to be done on me just to make sure there was nothing wrong. Mm. And my life was like completely spinning out of control. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I lost like 20 or 30 pounds in the course of like one or two months just because I wasn't, I wasn't eating. I'd wake up in the middle of the night with panic attacks. It was, it was horrible. 
um, eventually, um, the anxiety started to subside as I started graduate school. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had a lot of like imposter syndrome stuff happening right at the beginning. Like how can I be treating this stuff if I'm feeling this way? Yeah. Mm. Um, how to interrupt you for a sec, how common, how common are, I've known a few, just not a ton, but a few therapists in my life and they're not always the healthiest people. (laughs) I've noticed. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I, I don't think that you're one of those. Um, so some of it's kind of by their own doing, but like how, how common are pretty serious mental health issues amongst psychologists and how many like psychologists have a therapist that they talk? Is that pretty normative or not? Does it just depend on the person? I think it depends on the person. I, there, there is somewhat of like this, uh, the stigma that people get into psychology mm-hmm. and behavioral health because mm-hmm. they've had some sort of issue mm-hmm. and they're they that led them to that field. And my and question, have, my question just figured just furthered that stigma because it's not true. Yes. Yeah. Right. But I can I, help. I it, right. I, I don't think it's as true as why pastors seek being pastor, you know, yeah. some, you know, there's a lot of, you know, um, theories of why, you know, pastors, you know, seek, seek that, Mm -hmm. that out. Now, I think that's probably true for some people, but, um, for the most, I mean, people, people vary in terms of their motivations and entering Mm -hmm. the field in terms of them having their own treatment. I mean, it's, it's also another common myth that, uh, psychologists and therapists have their own therapist all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just totally not true. Interesting. Hmm. We, I'm, I I know some of my colleagues who have gone to therapy at mm-hmm. different points in their lives, but I don't think that was um, so much occupational related. That was just personal related. Okay. Mm. So um, yeah. as you're in the midst of graduate school, trying to get a handle on this to be able to, because I know how dominating it was for such yeah. a, a long time. What were the components that came together to help you learn how to, cause it's something that you, that doesn't just, it doesn't, hasn't like gone away. It's to a degree. It seems like over the course of our friendship, it's this companion that you live with and yeah. kind of have to keep check of or keep in check. Yeah. What, what have been the components that you, that have been the most successful for you to kind of help live with that in a way that's manageable? Right. Well, I did, I did try therapy early on. I tried two therapists, um, Mm. and unfortunately they were failed experiences. These were therapists who were not treating anxiety like it needed to be treated. Mm. Uh, they were not using uh, what we call empirically validated or basically science driven techniques to Mm. treat the anxiety. And so I would often leave the therapy sessions more anxious because I'm like, I'm not, I'm not getting better. Like this isn't, this Mm. isn't helping. It's awful. Um, and I tried, I tried medication, um, too. I tried an antidepressant medication. I believe it was Paxil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and unfortunately, sometimes those medications in the beginning have a lot of side effects and it actually caused me more anxiety. Good Lord. And so, yeah, so that, that wasn't a path that I could take either. So I kind of just started trudging forward and, what I know now and I didn't know then is 
anxiety causes your life to shrink because you start avoiding everything that makes you anxious. Mm-hmm. And when you're having panic attacks every day, you don't ever want to leave your house. Yeah. And like the severest form of that is called agoraphobia, which uh, I think in Latin means fear of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's literally when you're confined to your home because you're so anxious. And I almost was to that point. Um, but thankfully, for some reason, I knew I had to just keep pushing myself. I had to keep facing the fear, go to work, go to church, go to class, right? Attend social events. And the more that I allowed myself to be anxious and do things and tolerate the distress, Mm -hmm. I eventually became less afraid of the anxiety itself, if that Mm. makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting because there's like, on one hand, what you're describing is like you, it started as having anxiety about some specific things. Then the anxiety Mm -hmm. becomes the anxiety Correct. And the form that I had, the diagnosis was called panic disorder. So you start having panic attacks. Those panic attacks are so extreme that you become fearful of having more panic attacks. Uh So it's almost like an anxiety about anxiety. Yeah. And, and so you, you'd want to limit anything that you do that would trigger that anxiety. Yeah. And, Mm. And so that's kind of what it became. Tyler, when you went through your, when you went through therapy and mm-hmm. you, what you were in your early twenties too? Uh, yeah. Uh, 18 to 20, basically. Were you yeah. really that young? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was when I was in college or yeah. done with That's right. Yeah. I guess so. Yep. What was your first, cause you've only, you only saw the one and yep. you had a good experience. Yeah. Great. What, what do you remember? Like when you first remembered going mm-hmm. like your first couple of sessions, mm-hmm. what, what was, I remember, I mean, oh, mine boy. was pretty fresh, but like, yeah. how did you feel going into it? And what was the experience like? Yeah. I mean, right away I felt pretty like that I was having to do this because I was broken. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I went in and wasn't sure if I was supposed to lay down on the couch. (laughs) Um, people ask me that all the time. He he didn't have like the, like chaise lounge, I guess is what you see on movies and stuff like that. He had like a regular couch. And so I was, I, I was like, uh, I just stood there and he's like, you can have a seat. And he had lots of seating. And I said, where? And he goes, wherever you want. And I was like, <laughs> too am many I choices. supposed to lay on the couch? And he's like, do you want to lay on the couch? <laughs> I'm like, I don't really like the questions already. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think, but also I was in a situation where uh, my church was, uh, I mean, I was like a, such a broke college student. So mm-hmm. my church was paying for it. Mm-hmm. And I also went in with like a purpose. I felt like... Like, well, that's not something that needs to happen forever. And so I needed to come in and like mean business. Um, And so I think I just remember like probably the first session, I just like vomited all the things and I'm sure he was like, Mm. all right. Wow. (laughs) So that's almost exactly what mine was too. I'm also thinking about starting an ongoing prank where I just visit different therapists throughout the Salt Lake Valley, (laughs) but, but wear like a robe. And lay on every couch. I like it. As that's just what Why I the do. robe? I don't know. I just feel like yeah. Zach was saying he was going to wear a robe on this tonight when we were texting okay. earlier. I just feel like I can't imagine anything more awkward to wear into a therapy session <laughs> than just a robe sure. and laying on the if couch. I'm, if, I'm, if I'm completely honest, you walk into my office like that, I'm already thinking about calling 911. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Good to know. That's probably fair. That prank's going to be short-lived. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I'm like... 
it's been such a, I think the thing, the longer that COVID went on, the more I started to read about and hear about the, the mental health and emotional health effects of it. So I'm curious yeah. as someone who lives in that space every single day, what's it been like to be a therapist over the last year? Um, has it been mm-hmm. different? Has it been uh, the same? I mean, just what, what, what role have you seen that play? And, and I want to follow that up with just like as you answer that question, I'm really interested in the complexity of, uh, so even as you talked about, you help treat people with an anxiety, but not necessarily in the midst of a panic attack yourself. And so what does it felt like to have to like help people work through the exact same thing you're going through simultaneously? Yeah, it's good. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it's been... I mean, it's been a lot of things, I think. It's hard to put one adjective on it, you know. Um, it's been extremely exhausting and difficult, for sure, because there's been a lot of adapting we've had to do as an entire field. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, the, the, the need has skyrocketed. Right. The need for help has skyrocketed. And so, um, just to kind of give you guys like kind of a timeline. I think this might help kind of paint the picture a little bit. Um, so February of last of 2020, mm-hmm. uh, get home from Disney, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. where I saw you guys. We, mm-hmm. we all, we all had COVID there. Mm-hmm. We, I'm convinced. Yeah. Yes. I am too. <laughs> everyone, I am too. everyone you, that you ever talked to like, Oh, I think I had COVID in February. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And we're like, no, we literally <laughs> were at Disney right. World. <laughs> we did all we're get very yeah. sick. And <laughs> yeah, we, re- we really did. Yeah. So I get home and I work as normal for a few weeks because mm-hmm. COVID wasn't, a, it was like a distant thing still, right. right? You hear rumblings of it. And then all of a sudden in March, like it hit, right? And so we went from doing um, our, our, our treatment as usual. So seeing patients in office. Um, and just to paint a picture of what that looks like for me, it's, I, I have eight, one, or excuse me, I have eight, one hour slots. I see eight patients a day. Um, and immediately that went all to remote work in Mm -hmm. a matter of one day. Yeah. And so the, the, the treatment changed completely connecting with people over a screen was completely different than connecting to people in an office Mm -hmm. and our field uh, and our treatment relies heavily on behavioral observations, mm. um, connecting with somebody. And I, I don't know how you quite describe that in words, but it's yeah. more of a feeling, yeah. right? Um, and so all of that changed immediately. And so I felt like um, I just kind of hit the ground running and I was just in it, yeah. right? Um, every day I came to work. So I work at a clinic that's attached to a hospital every day that I came to work, there were cars lined up outside wrapped around the entire hospital of people waiting to get COVID tested. Yeah. So it's just like in your face all the time in your face, all it's all the time. And not to mention like now I'm having, I should say I was doing some telehealth from the office of my, yeah. my, uh, uh, my clinic, yeah. uh, not to mention everyone's in PPE now. Right. And sure. I can't even see the face of my colleagues and it's just, it was just such a surreal experience, you know? Um, 
but the telehealth thing I think was the was the biggest the biggest challenge. Um, there was a lot of like ethical issues we had to navigate. There's a lot of legal issues you have to navigate. If somebody's in danger or is in crisis or is in is a risk, I can't facilitate anything, and they're not in front of me. So there's there's all these sorts of challenges we were having to navigate yeah. and think mm-hmm. on our feet. But the other thing is that the the severity of what people were experiencing increased exponentially, mm. and anxiety skyrocketed and that's not any surprise to anybody. Yeah. Depression skyrocketed, substance abuse, domestic violence, suicidality, all of these things we were just seeing an increase in. Patients that I had treated five years ago were suddenly coming back again. Yeah. Mm. And so it was just this wave of anxiety. And I was I, I'm an overfunctioner. So like when stuff gets hard and stuff is stressed, I I put my nose to the grindstone and I work more, Mm -hmm. which is not a good quality. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself doing this and I was ignoring some, some pretty important signs that I was stressed and anxious, Mm -hmm. you know, and I couldn't go to my gym anymore. And you know, who works out at home Uh, and I was eating more and not sleeping well. And so I just felt, you know, like, Liz, my wife and I, we like at a certain point, we're like, I'm feeling all these things that I don't usually feel. And like, you know, it was obviously stress and anxiety. Um, And dealing with people who are experiencing the same thing, like I really had to approach my work a lot differently. Mm -hmm. Um, People tend to come to us for answers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And COVID didn't have an answer, the virus, the pandemic, just to take you into it a little bit. Like when, when people come to me who have anxiety, like the anxiety is phobic and irrational usually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And now there's a real threat. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. And so you have people coming in very afraid and not knowing what's going to happen. And I'm also simultaneously very afraid and not knowing what's going to happen. Right. Mm. And so my, my therapy, I think, really had to shift from giving tools and challenging dysfunctional thinking and problematic behaviors that perpetuate anxiety and that sorts of thing to embracing uncertainty mm. and learning how to live in uncertainty. And that was that was really challenging because mm-hmm. I was doing that myself. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. But the one thing I, I think I kept pushing people towards was hope. Mm-hmm. Like we got to keep looking ahead that mm-hmm. this is going to change. And I think that I would, I was preaching that to myself mm-hmm. a lot at the time. Totally. Yeah. And so it was, a, it was a huge shift in just how we handled anxiety yeah. in general. I w- so by, let's see, March, November, December, January, February, I was like five, six months in to therapy myself when we went into like our shutdown lockdown here. <clears throat> and I remember making a real deliberate decision because typically the way that I function the vast majority of my life is I'm just going to kind of shut off whatever makes me uncomfortable. And so rather mm-hmm. than be overwhelmed by it, I'm just going to pretend like it's not there. And so I've been trying to learn how to not do that. And so I remember making a real deliberate decision I'm going to, I'm going to, to lead through this 
experiencing it myself first and foremost. And um, I think what it's forced is to, if you're going to do, if you're not going to be like this really robotic detached sort of everything's fine, let's pretend like this isn't a thing. And, you know, all hope all the time. It's, it just really forces you to be a much more empathic leader um, or therapist or in whatever way. And that I have found is still very healing for people. Even if you don't have, there is no answer to take this way. None of us can speed it up uh, and make it end. But I think the one Mm -hmm. powerful thing that we have had that we've seen in our own church is we're gonna, we're all experiencing the same Mm -hmm. thing. And how, I mean, that's never the case. And in this case, we're all like our, the symptoms it might be producing in us might be a little bit different, but it's all being caused by the same source and so we've tried to work really hard to just lean into that and just to let that be. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think some of it was our response to seeing, I remember we were only a few months into COVID and it seemed like there was a huge uh, kind of wave of these churches that were like, we're going to own the pandemic. We're going to oh, reclaim yeah. this time. We're going to last long, like set them up and knock them down, you know, and yeah. all of this kind of thing that, you know, like redeem the time. Yeah. And meanwhile, I was having a hard time getting off the couch. Yeah. And so I just, uh, I think that some of that was just like, I don't know where those guys summoned that from yeah. to even like project that. But yeah. I don't, I know I'll speak for myself. I did. I just didn't have it. Yeah. Totally. And I, we just, we watched back Zach this week, the, the very first stream that we had to do. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry listening to myself go, Hey, it's going to be three weeks and we'll be back in person. (laughs) And then I did this message. It was the first time in my whole life where 30 minutes before I was going to preach it, I really felt compelled to scrap my message Mm -hmm. and do something much more off the cuff specific to like what's happening around us. So I did this message in Isaiah 26 about like where we fix our attention. um, And like, basically (laughs) this is a condescending way to describe my own message, but it was like, keep your eyes fixed on God and you'll be fine through this Mm -hmm. whole thing. And Mm -hmm. it it was, it's interesting. And and I feel like had it been three weeks, that would have been great. Yeah. But I just, I look back now a year later going, Oh man, that guy has no idea how sad he's going to (laughs) get. How tired it's going to become. <laughs> it's just crazy. Oh, man. What do you think yeah. about, like, what do you, so there's, there's, I mean, this is so true for us too. We've had to figure out so many different things. What do you, mm-hmm. there's so much conversation in like ministry circles right now about what's going to, what is going to remain the same in some of these new, like, are a bunch of people going to stay online? But when you think about your discipline, what do you think is going to remain out of the innovation that's had to take place through COVID? Or mean, with telehealth, yeah, with yeah. telehealth in particular, yeah, that's that's a that's a great question, and that's something that I've been mulling around, and we've been talking about in the field. Um, I think one thing that we've learned is that we can execute it. We we found ways to make it work, right? And we've been able to reach so many people who n- normally would not ever seek treatment. Interesting. Mm-hmm. This is unbelievable. That's great. Yeah. You know. Um, the difficult thing is that insurance companies drive a lot of these decisions, unfortunately. Mm, Sure. And a lot of people are bound, uh, by the decisions that their insurance companies make. And so if prior to COVID, 
there really wasn't any coverage for telehealth services. I mean, mm-hmm. you're pretty much going to pay for all of it, you okay. know? Um, and that mean, you know, that could be upwards of, you know, 160 to $200 an hour for a therapy session, right, you know? Sure. Um, so a lot, I, I think what a great thing that's come from it is we've learned that we can execute it and we can utilize it and it could be useful I don't think it is as useful as being in the office. And I think there's going to be a lot of research in this area comparing the two hmm. uh, in, in terms of clinical outcomes. And I can't wait to, to see that data. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still helpful, which is great, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot is going to be determined by the powers that be. Um, and, and usually those decisions are, are financially uh, made. That's interesting because I think the same thing about ministry. You know, there's been, I mean, some churches that already had a really strong online presence, like Life Church. I heard Rick Warren in an interview at Saddleback talking about it's Rick Warren. So sure. he's like, we've reached trillions of people. Right. And you're like, is that even how many people exist? How many are there? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. We're reaching aliens and we have a <laughs> campus on Saturn now. You're so always like, Elon what? Musk. We've yeah, partnered what? with Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> but a picture of purpose driven life on the surface of right. Mars. Yeah. Um, the Mars rover is just driving it around. Um, yeah. With no purpose. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's not going to give you that. Dad joke. Yep, totally. Um, and so, I mean, virtually every, not, not, not literally every, but almost every church has had to figure out some way to stream or yeah, they've had no absolutely. way yeah. to, to give anything to people. And I do think it has certainly reached more people than mm. what we were. And the same thing, like, you're much more inclined to open YouTube on your phone than to darken the door of a church mm-hmm. if you've never been. Right. And I do think there's value in it. And I think that we'll continue to see that. And I, I, same thing. It's just not the same as being in the room. Right. No, I mean, in, so what's missing in telehealth, uh, rather than being in the room with your therapist is mm-hmm. that connection. I think the same thing with online church and yeah. being in, uh, in the church is you miss that community. You miss that personal connection. There's something that happens there that we can't quite describe. That's, that's palpable, you know? Well, the main, main thrust of what I really wanted your thoughts on is, so last week we spent some time trying to, what we describe as take stock, um, of the last 12 months by trying to really identify and acknowledge the challenges that we have faced Mm. in pastoral ministry. It has been taxing on everyone in different ways, pastors included. And so the question that I wanted to ask you is, I mean, I think stopping and identifying and, and acknowledging specifics of what has been hard um, is good and important um, rather than just ignoring it and maybe underestimating the impact that it's had on you or others. But the question I have for you is like, so like what's next where we've, we've acknowledged some of these things. Tyler and I have spent an immense amount of time talking. I have this grave concern of even with the vaccine increasing, like here in Utah, our governor thinks everyone will have access by April 1st, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And I still think if COVID was gone, like God just said, it's gone and it's over. I still feel like the residue of the last 12 mm-hmm. months is going to continue 
for a season of time. And so like, where, where do we go from here? How do you, how do you, would you encourage ministry leaders, not just for their people, but we're specifically talking about for them. How do we process what we've been through in a healthy way? How do we heal where necessary? I know that that's all, it's kind of a multiple Mm -hmm. ways of asking the same thing, but just what are your thoughts on, and if you could condense this into a 30 second answer, that would be excellent. (laughs) I feel like you've just asked me to write a dissertation. Um, (laughs) I, I love the question because I think there's going to be a lot of people and I've, I've even seen it now and I've experienced it in myself where we just want to move on. Yeah. Like I'm so sick of talking about COVID. Right. I'm so sick of it, seeing it, hearing it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for uh, 12 months, it's been 12 months, 75%, of what I talk about with people in a therapy session has been COVID-19, right? Wow. So I think we like, naturally we want to move on. And like you said, that's a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we need to recognize and be uh, in the present and, and look at how has this impacted us? Mm-hmm. I think a way to do this is something that, and this, this may be a little clinical, but mm-hmm. I think, I think it could be useful the way that we're taught to conceptualize individuals in our training is through something called a biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. The biology of who you are, the psychology of who you are, and the sociology of who you are. Mm-hmm. And so, how has this impacted us biologically? Interesting. People have died. Mm-hmm. People are still managing um, post infectious symptoms. Mm. Um, there are medical ongoing medical problems because of the virus. There are ongoing neuropsychiatric problems because of the virus. We, these, all these things don't just go away. We have to remember that they're still here and they're still with the people that we love and that we're in community with and that we're treating and counseling and all of these things. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's really the, the biological aspect of it, you know, and I'm sure it it extends beyond that Mm -hmm. most definitely. Mm -hmm. The psychological aspect of that model and and psychology basically means uh, human behavior and mental processes. Mm -hmm. So as well as emotion. So how has the last 12 months changed how we think, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our future, how we think about our relationships. Um, how has uh, COVID-19 changed how we behave? And this is, I think, in a lot of what you were just saying is like the residue of all of the policy and procedures that we've had to to make over the last 12 years, or excuse me, 12, felt like 12, 12 years, yeah. 12 <laughs> months. How is that going to carry forward and, and affect people, you know? Um, Undoubtedly, it's impacting our emotions. We're seeing, uh, you know, like we alluded to earlier, that the prevalence rates of everything are going way up. Mm-hmm. Divorce rates undoubtedly are going to increase. All mm-hmm. sorts of things um, from relational aspects are are, are 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 going to be affected too. I'm even thinking about my my kindergartner who wasn't able to go to kindergarten this year. Right in in Chicago, we've been extreme. We've had pretty pretty uh, stringent precautions. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But what happens in, in kindergarten? Kindergarten is all about socialization, yeah. learning communication. Like these are things, these are developmental characteristics that are going to be impacted indefinitely, mm. you know, and that, that leads to the, to the social emotional aspect, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that I, I've noted, I, I've been lucky to be vaccinated because I work in a hospital mm-hmm. um, and I've been able to take my mask off in certain situ- uh, social situations. Yeah. And it's a shock. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. And, and there's still a fear that's there, mm-hmm. you know, but sociologically it's going to, to impact how we communicate with people, how people interact with one another, not to mention the politis politicization of COVID-19 and the factions, you know, all that, that split off. So I think we need to, as mental health practitioners, as pastors, Mm -hmm. we need to be sensitive that people are still going to be dealing with these things in their own way. We've all gone through a collective trauma Mm -hmm. and like in any trauma, people absorb that in their own ways. Mm -hmm. And we just, we really need to, that just because we're turning a corner doesn't mean that that the effect of this is over. So we have to keep that in mind. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. What do you think about? Um, I mean, one thing that I that I I don't know if I've just started following along in some streams where this is more common or if it is becoming more prevalent, but. Uh, I'm curious, just your thoughts as both a Christian yourself and a therapist about also like the spiritual component in this, but it would seem like, mm-hmm. uh, have you heard or read anyone talking about deconstruction uh, of people's faith where basically like you were a Christian in the worst cases, someone deconstructs to the, to the extent where they would identify as an atheist. So no longer a Christian, but it seems like it's becoming more and more prevalent Um, Hmm. I think part of it is there's been some, uh, very well-known like quote unquote celebrity pastors or Christians that have Mm -hmm. gone through this in the last couple of years. But, um, it seems like, like I just would speak for myself to say like the last year has been, um, I'm still trying to figure out how to articulate this. I would say like, I feel like my relationship with God is closer and more intimate than it's ever been. And I have felt whether it's like evangelicalism because of the enmeshment of evangelicalism with Trumpism and this like very specific political thing that's synonymous Mm -hmm. in so many people's eyes and not just non-Christians, but even Christians equated as the same thing. So I feel like I don't feel comfortable identifying as an evangelical anymore because of what it, of what Mm -hmm. that means culturally now. And that's weird for me that feel like that's, I've lived in that. That's been my home or my family for my whole life. I mean, as far back as I can remember. And I feel like that. And so what, just what are your thoughts on, I guess, what advice would you give to people who are even, even in their own faith have like, we've watched Mm -hmm. what's happened socially, whether it's with race or with this last election and the politicizing of everything that's gone on. And just like, you can't, Mm -hmm. there's like, every time I meet with someone right now, I have a couple things where I'm like, I just really hope, I hope they don't, we don't have to talk about like these three things because it's going to be so polarizing. There is Mm -hmm. no middle ground anymore. And I just think that that's led to a lot of 
we just have a lot of people, even in our own church, they're like, they're not sure. It, it, it's just like, it has caused their faith in some very yeah. key things to unravel. And I'm just curious what you, what your thoughts are about that. I'm not surprised by that. Um, and I think as an extremely privileged country mm-hmm. that in, at least in our lifetime, we have not experienced any extreme tragedy mm-hmm. like this. 9-11 for sure. I'm, I'm not discounting anything that, but to this level and to yeah. this pervasiveness, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. The level of pervasiveness, um, you know, we had a year of a pandemic and the socio and political unrest, mm-hmm. everything that happened. I think I'm thinking about other countries in the world where this is the norm, right? Like, mm-hmm. and disease and death and political unrest and genocide and things of these nature of this nature happens. I think when we're confronted, we've, we've been largely sheltered by, by these things or from these things as, as a generation or generations that now that we're confronted with this, it, it, it makes us start to question things, question the very tenets of our identities, our faith. And it's, it's not surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's you're building to, up to telling me to stop being a baby. Is that where this no, is headed? No, <laughs> no, not, not at all. That's not, no, no, no. I just, no, I'm just I know. normal. I think totally, I just want to yeah. normalize it. Yeah. Like, death makes you question things that you've never questioned before. Mm -hmm. It really prioritizes things very quickly. And I've worked with people at the end of their lives or worked with people who have been lost loved ones and been there at the last moments and things come in, come into picture and come in, become priority very quickly in those moments, you know? And I think as a collective trauma, we've experienced this in, so I just want to normalize that. It yeah. makes sense mm-hmm. to me that people are questioning that. Speaking into that in terms of advice, I mean, I think as a Christian brother, I'm reminded of something I think that Matt Chandler said on your um, In the Room podcast, if I'm remembering this correctly, we always want to win the brother, I think he said mm-hmm. in in your interview, meaning mm-hmm. like you're going to have somebody across from you, a brother or a sister that... Mm-hmm that might think differently than you or angry with you or whatever that is, but what can I do in this moment Mm -hmm. to, to love them, to give them grace, whatever Mm -hmm. that is um, to come out of this in, 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 uh, in, in a healing way, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know any other way to handle it because Mm -hmm. it feels like there's so much divisiveness Mm -hmm. that we have to cut through to, we got to give people grace in Mm -hmm. this, you know? I I think that's a good point too. And there is a huge, there's a huge difference between, uh, I just want to highlight what you just said, because I, I think that it would be easy to misunderstand. There's a huge Mm -hmm. difference in some sort of conflict with someone where you just have differing opinions. There's a huge difference between wanting to win and wanting to win the listener and, there you go. Um, and I think, I think, I do think one of the problems right now is the only, the only thing so many Christians seem to be worried about is winning. I just need to win mm-hmm. the argument and then I'm right. And, um, but there's not very much attempt to like win the person. And, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I don't know where along the way it just became enough for us to be right. 
and mm-hmm. we can sleep well at night, having no concern for whether or not we've convinced anyone, compelled anyone, you know, won a listener. Uh, it just like, I'm right. So I'm going to sleep good tonight. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super, mm-hmm. that's super problematic. Sure. Right. Especially in this season when right is so subjective. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, obviously we, we've talked about it a bunch on this, but we've, we've been very, um, tried to be very outspoken proponents for, um, pastors and ministry leaders feeling the permission to seek help. Um, mm-hmm. and, and sadly, and you know, we've talked about this for years, but there's just still not just for pastors, but for Christians in general, there's, and really, I guess just Americans in general, there's still so much stigma around mental health, yeah. um, but it's bad in the church oftentimes. So I'm just curious as kind of a closing question as we get ready to wrap up, what would you say to pastors who are not in a safe space? to be able to pursue mm. therapy. Like, I mean, you've listened to this, so, you know, we've talked, we know actual people who um, have been fired and let go from their churches because it became public that they had been seeking help, which is like so disgusting that I barely right. have words for it, mm. you know, or maybe they're in a position where they don't have access to it. So what what would you say, you know, and, and so less around like, I, I know that the telehealth thing is much more accessible. So if you're in a rural space and you don't have act like there's, that's easy now. Mm-hmm. So that might be a solve, but I'm more specifically like, do you, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Do you have another hack for mm. someone who just can't step into therapy right now, but, but is kind of in the wake of this last year, like I'm, st- I'm really, this has really hurt me. I'm having a really hard time and I don't know what to do. What would you say? Yeah, that's tough. That's a really, that's a really tough question. Um, you know, I would, if you, if you can't get into formal treatment, mm-hmm. right. And you're not ready to take that step. Mm-hmm. Hopefully this person has somebody in their inner circle, you know, like you guys have been talking about the last couple of weeks mm-hmm. that you can just begin the process of some level of vulnerability. Yeah. You know, cause that's, that's, I mean, that, honestly, that's really where it starts, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and it's really sad that, that people can't, can't do that yeah. right now, you know, yeah. can't seek, um, formal help. But I, I think that at least starting to verbalize some things with somebody who's close to you and who's trusted mm-hmm. again, like you guys have talked about, that's, that's a place to start. Yeah, you know, good. the other hack, I mean, if, if it's not an institutional fear that I'm going to get in trouble, mm-hmm. if I, if it's a personal mm-hmm. uh, barrier, mm. asking the question, like, what are, what are the consequences of me doing this, yeah. getting treatment? Like what's in the way? Yeah. Sure. Is it, is it pride? Mm-hmm. Is it stigma? I mean, like what, just identify what that is and ask if it's worth it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's good. It's good. One thing I said um, last week when Tyler and I started this conversation was um, I, uh, with Telio, um, there's, there's been a vision to have there be a a care and coaching component, but less coaching oriented and more care oriented. Um, so some combination of something that would resemble like spiritual direction and 
coaching type thing. But in lieu of what we've been talking about and that we're a year into this whole thing, I've, I've opened up three spots to people, um, pastors or ministry leaders that are in the position we're talking about. And, um, and maybe they're the only ones who know, but they're in this place of feeling like, I don't even want to do this anymore. I want to be done with ministry. I want to do something else. Um, I just, I'm over all of this because mm-hmm. of what it's been. I'm opening for the next three months. Uh, I'm looking for three people that would be able, that would want to talk uh, two times a month uh, to me. And so I would say, mm-hmm. if you're listening and that's you, the great thing is I'm not a therapist. So if there is, if you're in an, in, like what you, you use the term institutional, if there's an institutional stigma where you are, or you don't have access, or financially you're not in a place as a first step. Um, I would love to have three people to be able to, to connect with over the next few months to do what you're talking about. Just be vulnerable, um, have a safe place to be able to verbalize and say like, I don't, I, this is, this is brutal. I'm not sure what to think about all this. So, um, if that's something that you are interested in, you can just email me Ryan at ridgeline.church. Uh, and I would love to be able to follow up with you and to think about that. So Zach, thanks for being handsome and helpful. Uh, That's actually title of your memoir, Handsome and Helpful. I I feel more honored with the handsome part. Do you? Than the rather than the helpful <laughs> yeah. part. That's good. Now, I I will post a picture. I want I want the world to know that nothing's being exaggerated tonight. That you're as han- every bit as handsome as uh it was really just me. I feel like Tyler and his maybe jealousy has has been reluctant to speak up about how attractive you are. I've, well, I've been feeling that. All, been I've a, been feeling that. There I, is a tension yeah. that I don't, I don't usually feel. Usually I feel like we got a real strong connection, yeah. but I, I've been on this podcast for 40 episodes <laughs> and my handsomeness has not been my singleness. My yeah. uh, like so many things have been commented on. Uh, so I'm just not sure what to do with that. <laughs> Maybe I'll talk and to you're Zach wild, about it you're later. You're card. Yeah, that's right. You're the wild card. card. And the the talent. The non-straight wild card. (laughs) That's the specific. You got to look that up tonight. I do for sure. Don't Google that, actually. Oh, yeah, that's good. I'm nervous about that. (laughs) Non-straight wild card. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. All right. But in all seriousness, man, thanks so much for taking time yeah, to jump absolutely. on. And I think I think it'd be good if we made you a, uh, like a reoccurring, or a reoccurring guest expert. I'd love that. Or expert guest, or, well, I'm not sure what the right way to, to phrase that is. Something. It would be like the who's the doctor that Oprah Brent? What, what was his was name? Doctor Oz. Phil. I oh. could be doc. What'd you say? Well, Doctor Phil's the therapist. Doctor Oz is the medical doctor. Oh. Which yeah. do you guys know that Doctor Oz just like saved a dude in an airport? Did you hear about that? Really? I yeah. Bet. It's pretty no. cool. Yeah, he's like he well. apparently he's the real deal. Hmm. But I could be like the doctor. I don't want to be Doctor Phil. No, you can be our Doctor Phil. I like that so much more. <laughs> Your house is on fire and you, you got to get, get out. out. You got to get out. <laughs> Listen, I wouldn't mind Dr. Phil's bank account. I'm just going to level true. with you both. It's very, so. very true. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, as always, we want you to know what an honor it is that you take time to jump in and listen to uh, to this. And so if you've enjoyed this, as always, we ask you to help in three ways. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can leave a review wherever you listen. And lastly, we would love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at, at Ryan Hughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. And you can find me on the same platforms at, at Tyler Dravitz. That's D-R-E-W-I-T-Z. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. What do you think about the bye-bye? How do you feel about his ever-changing bye-byes?
I I like that one. There's been ones in the past that were a complete turnoff. Okay, good to know. Good to know. 